Support for the show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power the collaboration needed for teams to accomplish what would otherwise be impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200, or two million, Atlassian software is built to help keep you connected and moving together as one. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Episode 121, Jack Dorsey resigned. That's right. The dog gets his bone. All I need is Tesla at 100 bucks a share for Apple to acquire Peloton. And then people will love me. They will love me. Go, go, go. Welcome to the 121st episode of the Prop G Pod. I'm reminiscing a little bit. I remember... Episode one, I was in Mexico. I packed my go bag. As you can imagine, I'm a little bit neurotic and a little bit data-driven. And when the novel coronavirus first was reported, uh, potentially in New York, I called a friend of mine who's an epidemiologist. And I said, what's going on here? And he said, Scott, this is worse than anyone says it is. And I told everyone at our firm to go home. And I immediately started doing all these crazy spreadsheets around a region that was low density, uh, low-density resort, comfortable, 30-minute uh, drive from a good hospital, hour flight from a world-class teaching hospital. You know, this is how you think when you're old and you have a health scare. And we ended up in the Mayacoba in Mexico. And of course, that's when we were launching the Prop G pod. And I literally did my uh, episode one. When was that? Uh, almost two years ago. year and three quarters. Anyways, Good with data, bad with the calendar. And uh, my first guest, uh, or our first guest, was Aswat Damodaran, and I did it from the bathroom where they had towels for sound absorption of the place we were staying in. Anyways, they'll walk down memory lane, the lane of memories, walk with the dog, grab my paw, and head down this majestic journey. In today's episode, we speak with Brian Seleski, the founder and CEO of Argo AI. Argo AI is an autonomous vehicle company that builds a software, hardware, maps, and cloud support infrastructure for self-driving vehicles. We discussed with Brian the state of play regarding the space, including the various business opportunities and the barriers. Okay, what's happening? Let's talk a little bit about supply chain. Oh my God, I've been saying for a while that it's the boring shit that creates shareholder value. Well, guess what? It's also the boring shit that can really trip you up, and specifically, I believe, I believe that supply chain innovation has been responsible for the greatest increases in shareholder value, whether it's Apple forward integrating into stores when everyone was getting out of it, or whether it's Amazon making huge, staggering, unthinkable investments in supply chain such that they could get you everything within 48 hours free of charge. Who would have known that would build the most valuable retailer in history? So, okay, you've heard all the woes about the supply chain shortages being at historic levels. Companies are scrambling. Retailers are facing long delays. And America is running out of everything. It's interesting, though. It's really interesting because I spoke to, I have some friends who are in real estate 
And they said it's getting worse, which kind of shocked me. I thought that there'd be so much economic incentive to kind of get the gunk out. Uh, but it's led to a lot of things. It's led to, uh, it's kind of the, what is that? It's the supply side of inflation, right? Inflation is more money chasing fewer goods and there's fewer goods because a lot of our goods are just taking a lot longer to get here. So just as an example, the, the way the supply chain, one basic way the supply chain has changed is in the 1990s when um, my firm Red Envelope was trying to find a way to get people gifts, tasteful gifts, tasteful gifts, uh, to people's homes after they clicked buy on their computer screen, we would just try and find the lowest cost provider. That's what it was all about. And we'd find some warehouse on the Kentucky-Ohio border near a runway that could get to the majority of homes either, you know, in three days via air or a week with um, ground transportation. And it was riddled with errors. It wasn't that efficient. There wasn't a ton of innovation. And then kind of Amazon came in and just changed everything. Uh, so with this pursuit of the lowest cost provider, things got um, more complex geographically. And that is, uh, I was on the board of a retail company and we woke up one day and found out, oh, 90% of our tops are produced in a 20 mile square radius. But unfortunately, that that region is in Shenzhen, China. And when that entire region gets shut down because of COVID protocols, all of a sudden we have a retailer with 550 stores that has no tops. And that is difficult. That is difficult to operate. So this has uh, led to a lot of companies saying, all right, clean sheet design, this supply chain interruption is deep enough that it's giving uh, companies the opportunity to pause and think about reshoring and also think about automation. And, and essentially what you have is in such a strong economy, supply chain is no longer about the lowest common or the low cost provider, but who who is the highest value provider. And also as companies, successful companies get more access to cheaper capital, it's how to use supply chain as a point of differentiation, meaning you need to own it. Where you know, if Red Envelope was reinvented today and we had more capital, I wouldn't be surprised if we would build our own warehouse and our own automation to try and develop competitive advantage against the other dozen companies who are also leasing a portion of that warehouse for their own fulfillment. So let's talk a little bit about what sparked this thinking. The Wall Street Journal reported that Samsung is building a $17 billion chip factory in Taylor, Texas, a small town outside of Austin. Not going to be that small anymore, $17 billion. So this isn't Samsung's first chip factory in Texas, nor is this unique to the company. Intel, for example, announced earlier this year that it's spending $20 billion to build two new chip plants in Arizona. Neither of these are really radical changes, but they're important developments for a category that warrants additional attention, especially if you're a business person or investor thinking about what really moves the needle. U.S. companies account for 48%, yeah, that's right, about half of the world's chip sales, yet produces 12% of them. That's down from 40% during the 90s. This actually has kind of geopolitical uh, ramifications. You know, so basically, the shoe lobby has figured out a way to talk Congress into thinking we need to have tariffs on uh, imports of shoes because we need to maintain our domestic shoe production capability in case there's a war and we need to put boots on the ground or need to put boots on feet uh, for boots on the ground, which is probably total bullshit. I can't imagine it's that hard to fire up a factory building shoes. But then again, I don't, I don't know the complexity of a shoe. But it's definitely true with chips. Chips are sort of the new oil. And my thesis is that the next war is going to be not fought over oil as they were in the 70s and 80s. It's going to be fought over chips, specifically probably something to do with China and Taiwan. 
or maybe South Korea gets involved. Who knows? Uh, by the way, Ian Bremmer said he didn't think that was true. I, I told him I thought Taiwan was a hot spot in the world, and he said that he thought that headline risk was was overestimated. Anyway, Samsung's announcement comes on the heels as the Biden administration is making strong pushes towards domestic semiconductor production. U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, for example, is urging Congress to pass the CHIPS Act. Something to do with Eric Estrada, pretty sure. Or uh, it would provide $52 billion in subsidies for U.S.-based semiconductor manufacturing and research. Eric Estrada, deeply misunderstood artist. Anyway, that aid will help the U.S. compete with countries including China, Taiwan, South Korea, and Singapore, where it's cheaper to manufacture chips, largely due to government subsidies. Right now, East Asia accounts for three-quarters of the world's chip manufacturing, and China is estimated to have the world's largest production share by 2030 due to an estimated 100 billion in government subsidies. So China, who has a tendency, I don't know, to think long-term, unlike the U.S., has said that this is a strategic importance and they're putting their money where their mouth is. These industries aren't just profitable. They're essential to national security. In World War II, the U.S. was able to become the arsenal of democracy. Why? Because we had shipyards and auto plants. No president wants to be dependent on trans-Pacific shipping for the semiconductors that power a modern economy. It's one thing when your sub-zero refrigerator is delayed. It's another thing when you can't put a tank on the battlefield because the chips aren't available. A modern military is increasingly dependent upon these very sophisticated chips. So uh, rebuilding the U.S. supply chain will not be cheap or easy and will likely cost companies up front, you know, see above investments. Hence, companies rely on foreign supplies in the first place. An analysis by Harvard Business Review noted that group purchasing organizations for medical goods control roughly 80% of U.S. generics purchased, and they've been able to drive prices down due to consolidation. In order to keep prices down, they offshore manufacturers in countries that either have lower cost positions or benefit from government subsidies. See above China. Now, again, nothing's for free. It's great to use other people's capital. It's great to find the lowest cost provider, but you lose that verticalization competitive advantage benefit. The other point to make is that regardless if companies can create a robust supply chain in the U.S., we're going to see more and more of theirs, at least out of China. And who I think is a big winner here, let's talk a little bit about winners. I think Mexico is going to be a big winner here. Remember in the 80s, you're probably not old enough, but in the 80s, Mexico had a minute, and that was the Maquiadoras, kind of these industrial centers in Mexico basically said, all right, we're close to you. We don't have these pesky things called unions driving up costs. There's a lot of people here who are very excited to make $10 an hour versus 30 bucks an hour. We have great technology universities in Monterey. We have an educated populace. We don't have any of the geopolitical bullshit risk overhang of, of Sino-American relationships. You know, Mexico is an ally and we can get you stuff within 48 hours as opposed to two weeks on a ship. So in sum, I think Mexico, I think, I think Mexico is going to be a big winner. As a matter of fact, another prediction, I think Mexico City is going to be one of that. I think Mexico City is going to be the new Austin or Miami, if you will. I think there's going to be a lot of interesting startups and a lot of young people moving to Mexico. Great city, great art, great food. Um, I'm actually thinking about going to Mexico City or spending more time there. I absolutely love it there. Why do we love the gangster cocktail that Mexico offers. It possesses the lower regulation that people uh, like about China. But however, it's also uh, got a huge proximity advantage. It's close to the U.S. and doesn't have the geopolitical implications that we mentioned or that we previously mentioned that the CCP imposes on us. It imposes on us. Turkey could be another key player. It could be the Mexico of Europe because of proximity in Middle Eastern and North African countries. IKEA, for example, remember them? IKEA is doing exactly that. The companies 
CFO explained to Reuters that the cost of a container from East Asia had skyrocketed to $12,000 from $2,000 before the 2020 pandemic and said it's more rational to have them manufactured closer to where they are sold. I'm going through this right now. Another consumer company I was on the board of got all of its product out of a small region again in China. Supply chain interruption hits, and we've decided with clean sheet thinking that we're going to reshore and that is build a factory, I think it's going to be in North Carolina, with much more uh, automation. And we found that while it be a little bit more expensive, over time it will scale and we'll be able to get the product uh, to the end retailer much quicker. So, yeah, pay a little bit more, but more higher NPS, higher satisfaction, and over the long run, probably less expensive given we won't have as many stockouts. So what does this all mean? Chips aside, there's more to consider uh, regarding a supply chain or proximity, the geography matters. Uh, I was on the board of Urban Outfitters during the pandemic and again realized that uh, flexible or heterogeneous supply chain is really important. There's so much innovation. I'm on the board of Panera. I'm signaling a lot my importance. I'm on the board here, I'm on the board there. Why do I do this? Because I'm desperately fucking insecure. Anyways, but I'm leaning into my insecurity. Panera will literally drop a Panera, a temporary uh, Panera in an area where it sees high density, whether it's a construction, an area with a lot of growth, it's figuring out ways, it's modeling all its cafes with a smaller footprint, but more drive-through or pickup capability. Again, everything we think about is sort of, you know, or is not mostly, not, not, not everything, but most of the real innovation here, I think, is coming through supply chain. How do you get shit to people quickly, efficiently, uh, and with sort of surprise and delight them? So, we're going to see a boom in what I call the last, last mile. Things like Joker and Gorilla or companies like Joker and Gorilla in cities including New York and bigger cities in Europe, their ghost kitchens are freakishly close to the consumer, meaning consumers get the order within 15 minutes. That's right. The dog wants to eat. He doesn't want to wait 16 minutes. 15 minutes, bitch, or less. The founder and CEO of Joker told the New York Times that the company has seen demand rise 15 to 20% every week to several thousand orders a day. Remember Cosmo? Remember Urban Fetch? Remember the Concord? All three of those things made a ton of sense. They were just several decades too early. So you're going to see Boom Technologies, going off script here, love the company, think time has come for Supersonic, but also that last mile, super quick, probably 90% of our consumer expenditures are across 10% of SKUs. So what if you took those 10% of SKUs distributed them or decentralized them, maybe we use the term DAO to make it cool, and essentially get people the, the 90% of their demand or suit 90% of the demand with 10% of SKUs, which can be distributed out to sort of mini hubs, and then with a flexible supply chain, be it a person on an electric bike or a scooter, and get your shit in 10 to 15 minutes, and then make a really elegant UI, which is also a part of supply chain. I think the new tech is actually UI. I think Airbnb wasn't built on technology. I think it was built on uh, UI, UX, and effectively disrupt the last, last mile. I think Uber's valuation uh, might actually be more a function moving forward of its role in the supply chain. And that is, does Uber or Uber Eats effectively become sort of a competitor to Amazon or a competitor to the supply chain of Amazon where it doesn't have expensive warehouses it has kind of a warehouse or a storage facility called a trunk and with some sort of cold storage and can just get you shit really quickly. Uh, anyways, mind blown, mind blown. What can we take away from this? One, it's a really good exercise in any business you're in. What is the supply chain? If you're a consultant, what is the flow of information and thought leadership from your team 
to you to some sort of product, be it a research report, a PowerPoint presentation, a podcast? And then how does that reach the end consumer? And let's go through every component and ask ourselves, one, how has technology changed it? Two, are there components that can either be removed, massively invested in to increase their speed or their robust? Look at your supply chain. It is absolutely being reshaped, and this is an opportunity to reshape it as consumer expectations are not only going up, they're being they're being morphed or changed or people are becoming saying, okay, maybe I can't get everything I want, but if I can get it in 10 or 15 minutes, I'll take this version. I'll take the, the eight ounce can of Dr. Pepper versus the 12 ounce can. Bad example, but you get my meaning. Also, also, I think this has huge geopolitical uh, overtones. Uh, I think that perhaps America is a big winner here because proximity and geography matter again, or matter more, I should say. And the supply chain in China is really gunked up. Why? Because they are cursed with moving stuff. They move atoms. And unless we figure out a way to suspend the natural order or come up with a teleportation machine, there's just going to be a certain level of friction from getting a physical item from point A to point B. Whereas the supply chain in the U.S. as a services economy is distinctly more zeros and ones. And guess what? The supply chain for Netflix and McKinsey and PayPal is running uninterrupted. They are shipping that shit out like there's no tomorrow. You are not seeing interruptions in the supply chain around AWS, around Netflix, around Goldman Sachs, around Public, the investing app. The, they are able to deliver the service of zeros and ones totally, totally unhampered. So could we see a seeding back of geopolitical and economic power from China to the US? Why, why? Because the US's supply chain from a demand standpoint is all fucked up and too bad you can't get your Sonos or you can't get your Sub-Zero refrigerator as fast as you like. But guess what? The way you make money, the way you make money such so you can afford that Sub-Zero refrigerator is largely, largely unaffected most likely because we're in a services economy. Look at your supply chain. Think about it as a clean sheet opportunity to redesign it and reshape it and also, also, Go USA, I think we're going to come out of this stronger relative to China. Stay with us. We'll be right back for our conversation with Brian Seleski. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor. What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. 
Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Welcome back. Here's our conversation with Brian Seleski, the founder and CEO of Argo AI. Brian, let's bust right into it. First off, where does this podcast find you? Uh, I'm coming in from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Pittsburgh, are you are you associated or affiliated with Carnegie Mellon? Uh, I worked there for eight years or so. Because they were kind of the gangsters, or didn't the entire self, the entire like automation department get lifted out of Carnegie Mellon and go to Uber? It's like kind of the is it the capital of the autonomous driving? Um, a sector, so to speak? It, it really is. Uh, I was lucky enough to work uh, with a lot of the, the great ones who have now gone on and started companies. And uh, I left a couple of years prior to Uber coming in. And yeah, they lifted a number of good people. But it still continues on today. There's still a number of great people that, uh, that are at CMU and you know, huge robotics institute, still a ton of mm -hmm. research coming out that's relevant today. Yeah, it's a, it's a great school. So Tell us about Argo and the services that your firm offers. Sure. So Argo, we started in 2016. Uh, we set out to build self-driving technology. So the hardware software that gets equipped onto cars and vehicles um, to, you know, move packages, move people, uh, get things from A to B. Um, we're partnered with Ford and also Volkswagen. And uh, we've got... Uh, a pretty long-range plan with both of them to build out a number of types of self-driving vehicles over the next uh, the next many years. And so you're you're kind of in this before it was cool. Your your efforts in self-driving date back to 2006. Walk us through how the space has evolved over the last 15 years in terms of what it, what people think of autonomous driving. What have the technological breakthroughs been? What, what have been the shifts since you've been involved in the space? Sure, yeah. I mean, I, I actually started at Carnegie Mellon in 2004 on some mm -hmm. very early autonomous vehicle uh, projects. And, um, you know, at the time, like even back to 2004, there wasn't a ton of money. I mean, most of the money came from government research grants. And... Um, you know, they were still trying to figure out what could it do. And, uh, but that's where a lot of the core technology actually got developed was with, you know, for DARPA. And you, you've heard of the robot races, the grand challenges, mm -hmm. the urban challenge. I was uh, the software lead on the urban challenge, which was the third sequence of races where DARPA basically pit a bunch of teams against one another to see who could, uh, you know, vie on an urban course and complete in the fastest time, and but to also do it safely and follow the road rules. But if you, if you go back to 2004, we were really just figuring out the basics. There wasn't really enough computation and storage, and and there wasn't any, you know, major cloud services that you could go to. Um, and if if you fast forward, you know, a decade later, we're now able to kind of hoover in significant amounts of information, process it super quickly and efficiently in the cloud. We have, uh, you know, both CPUs and GPUs that lets us process this information. And, and uh, we can build really uh, specialized uh, and powerful algorithms now that back then was thought as, as just computationally infeasible. Um, and, that, and so when you look at uh, things like neural networks, 
which are not new concepts. These are concepts that predate me by a long shot. But the mm -hmm. idea that you can now build these really deeply nested neural networks or deep nets and uh, accelerate that computation on a, on a modern GPU, what was previously unthinkable just because it was computationally infeasible is now feasible. And that's honestly what has propelled the industry from you know, a concept, a thought to now something that we can build a real business around. And what is the real business? Is it autonomous taxis? Is it autonomous driving mode for people who want to just take their own cars? Is it commercial autonomous trucks? What, where do you think the sweet spot is commercially? Well, I think eventually it's all of the above. If we mm -hmm. look at uh, the number of miles driven in the US alone, it's about 3 trillion. If you divide mm -hmm. that up, those miles, you can assign them to different use cases. Some of it's trucking, some of it's passenger car miles, some of it is urban transit. Um, and I, I think what we have to look at is uh, all the different businesses that are in this space, it's easy to lump them in as all AV companies, but the but they really aren't. There's Everybody's going after something slightly different when you tease it apart. So as an example, right, uh, people will say, well, I have an aut autonomous vehicle today, I have a Tesla. And I say, well, it's not really the type of autonomous vehicle we're building, which is one that doesn't require a human to pay attention at all um, mm -hmm. and that can operate totally driverless. A Tesla, you have to at least, you should be paying attention, prepared to take over if it can't solve or perform well in a given situation. That's more driver assistance. It still has extremely powerful technology behind it, but it's a driver assist feature. And I think what happens is you kind of move up the staircase uh, from driver assistance level features that maybe give you better efficiency, better safety, you know, um, less driver fatigue. And then you get to fully autonomous vehicles. And to me, that's where the true uh, game changer is. It has far reaching effects. If you look at uh, trucking as a use case, um, mm -hmm. you know, we have a huge driver shortage uh, today. The supply chain is a bit of a mess. I think the pandemic has shown us where a lot of our weaknesses and vulnerabilities are. Um, and I think autonomy has an opportunity to really get more trucks on the road um, and get what we need from A to B. I think if you look at it from a passenger car perspective, those types of mm -hmm. miles, you know, we don't want to prevent you from taking the classic, iconic, quintessential road trip and do mm -hmm. that. Drive, enjoy it, right? Spend time with your family. Fact of the matter, though, is. A lot of us are stuck in a car and don't want to be in the middle mm -hmm. of traffic, don't want to be driving, have our mind on other things. Those are the types of miles that at Argo we want to automate and make it so that you don't have to drive if you don't want to. This feels, I mean, I was, I, I was believing that the, we have a tendency to focus on B2C and it gets over-invested in terms of attention and capital. But the opportunity, I always find the greatest ROI is, is in B2B. And it just strikes me that autonomous trucks driving in the dead of night when the roads aren't crowded and quite frankly, this, a sensor failure isn't as, doesn't have as much downside. Um, and uh, the fact that we have to pay these individuals to drive, whereas I think a lot of Americans actually get utility out of driving, either they enjoy it or they like the sense of control. It, it just seems like the commercial applications that are around moving things across roads you know, and off hours, it seems like that is just the no brainer that that's where this, um, that's where this should begin. I mean, anyways, that's more of a statement than a comment, uh, more of a comment than a question. My, we've been talking about autonomous vehicles for a while. 
And my sense is the future isn't happening as fast as we'd hoped, whether it was, and I realize you don't have any control over what Elon Musk says, but he predicted, I think two or three years ago, there'd be a million autonomous Tesla taxis on the road within 12 months. Business Insider made projections. And it, it seems to me that there's clearly some friction here uh, because you just don't see them on the road. It's just the future does not appear to be happening at the pace. What is getting in the way? What are the barriers? Why isn't autonomous already here? I think that it's a progression. Um, I think a lot of business people who didn't necessarily understand the technology made a lot of projections um, mm -hmm. uh, because they're spending a lot of capital. Let's face it, a lot of capital is going into the development of this technology. Um, they they want to put milestones out there, right? Mm -hmm. um, whether they've been met or not, to me, is is less important. What's more important is that you stay true to the principles around what you're building building it for. If you're building mm -hmm. a more efficient way to get around, a safer way to get around, and you put those principles first, then it delivers when it delivers. And that's what I tell people is say, look, I'm all about signing up our team to deliver against some milestones. But at the end of the day, if it isn't ready, we're going to keep working on it until it is. The data is going to tell mm -hmm. us when it's ready, Scott. And mm -hmm. um, I just I think that there were people making projections that maybe weren't as informed about the state of things or, or how difficult it would be to um, get the miles, get the testing, you know, run through um, all of the the things required to make sure you have a solid software release uh, and a solid hardware base to work from. Um, uh, I think that that's becoming known now. I think you'll see a lot of people, a lot of folks that were making those projections are are, mm -hmm. are no longer making projections, and you know they're giving it the time it takes for this tech to get developed. Let's face it, this is a pretty hard thing that we're doing. Oh, no doubt. So I'm going to ask you to make some projections, recognizing nobody really knows. So I'm imagining a day when I call an Uber or a taxi or I decide to go to the airport and uh, call as a part of my Apple subscription or, or, or because I own a VW, I open my app and I say PBI and a car rolls either out of my garage or into my driveway and I get in the back seat and via autonomous driving, it drops me off at PBI. Give us a range of realistically when you think that is a realistic uh, happening. I think we're only uh, a couple of years away from that realistically being able to happen. Um, mm -hmm. Now, now the, the question that, that I think doesn't get asked and should be though is, when does that scale out where that service is available to everybody? To me, right. that is many years down the road and I hesitate to give a projection. And the reason is because the way the technology is fundamentally developed today is very much a street by street, block by block thing. We test mm -hmm. to the data and the situations that are in front of us. And, um, you know, we're creating a playbook that we think is one of the best in the industry on how to go from go city to city. But at the end of the day, it's still going city to city and it's going to take time to roll it out everywhere. And what are the friction points here? Is it processing power? Is it the mapping? Is it capital? Is it regulation? What, is it uh, partnerships with manufacturers to begin integrating the technology on the assembly line? For Argo, what, what is, what, you know, for lack of a better term, what keeps you up at night? Yeah, there are a couple of things. Um, so certainly the supply chain and access to some of the more advanced uh, processors, um, mm -hmm. you know, lead times have just gone to crazy levels, um, even basic things now is taking way longer than they should. And we really need to get to the bottom of that. We have to invest in that. Uh, and we need to consider that as part of 
what I would call infrastructure. To me, it is basic infrastructure for this country to run and to be able to innovate. Um, the other big thing is regulation. So, um, you know, the U.S. has currently in place a deployment cap where you cannot, any one manufacturer or developer cannot deploy more than 2,500 vehicles. Um, it's an artificial cap that was put in place for to give regulators time to create policy. You know, the time is now to get something passed. We've been working on this for the better part of a decade now. The European Union has already put forth and is uh, going to adopt a uniform set of regulations. Member states are now passing and pa paving the way. Uh, Germany is one of the first to really pave the way for fully the deployment of fully autonomous vehicles. Um, we're really at risk of falling behind here in the U.S., and we need to uh, we need to get it done. Brian Seleski is the founder and CEO of Argo AI, an autonomous driving technology company building the software, hardware, and infrastructure that powers self-driving cars. He is also the host of the No Parking podcast, a show that cuts through the hype of AI and autonomous vehicles. He joins us from his home in the autonomous capital of the world, Pittsburgh, PA. Brian, thanks for your time and stay safe. Thank you. We'll be right back. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Algebra of happiness. I watch Succession as I do every Sunday night, and it got me thinking about relationships with siblings specifically. I just can't get over how awful these people are and how awful they are to each other. And I can't imagine, or I'd like to think the majority of siblings are just nicer to each other than they are on Succession. Not that that's uh, any indication of how the world works, although I do think it's a very interesting drama. And I think there's an unlock here. Uh, I've always been struck by the sibling relationship. I'm very fortunate in the sense that I have a great relationship with my sister, and it was sort of, of a gift for me. And that is um, uh, technically, uh, Ashley is my half-sister. She's the daughter of my father and his third wife. By the way, he divorced his fourth wife about two years ago. But anyways, that's another talk show. Hold me. Anyways, but we saw each other when I would go spend Christmases and summers with my father and always got along, but we kind of got to know each other. She's about eight years younger than me. Uh, so never really, I mean, we connected and we always got along, but never really had a typical sibling relationship because we didn't live in the same household and we weren't very close in age. And just, we both sort of woke up as adults and realized we had uh, siblings and that we got along really well. And it's been an incredible gift and we try and get our kids together. And it's been just something that's been not only a, a wonderful surprise, but has been kind of a pillar in my life is my, you know, is my family, which is, you know, essentially my sister. Anyways, 
I think there's an enormous unlock. And, uh, and what I would ask you to think about is I've never had to experience this, but I am shocked in how many good people I know independently of each other that happen to be brothers and sisters, and they're both good, generous people, and they don't get along. And there's real kind of stuff or issues between them that has really inhibited their relationship. It just shocks me. I can know two really good people who happen to be brothers or brother and sister, and they don't speak because uh, something went down. Something ugly went down in childhood, and families are complicated. And I think a lot of that dysfunction can explode or things aren't handled well, and they scar, and people just can't get past it. I think the unlock, if you will, and I think this goes for all relationships, but especially for siblings, is to use this crisis or this pandemic as an opportunity to discover and unlock through forgiveness and generosity. And that is, if you have the opportunity and you see, um, you see the pandemic and what we've been through as an opportunity to sort of forgive, or not sort of, to forgive, and uh, reach out to a sibling. I don't know if it's suggesting you hit the restart button, or, and I don't want to say forgive them because they might, they may not take to that very well. Maybe it's it's you should be that for uh, you sh that should be forgiven. Maybe a form of forgiveness is to that you apologize or just I don't know, just make an effort to re-engage. I, I can't imagine the majority of siblings out there aren't open to some combination of forgiveness and grace and generosity. Um, but the, is that an unlock that you should be thinking about? Do you have the relationship? with your sibling that you want. If you'd been one of these people that had been forced to say goodbye over FaceTime to a sibling that was in the ICU, that was sick, is your relationship where you want it to be? Are you both good people? Are you both good people and bullshit has gotten in the way or dysfunction, which is endemic to almost every family has gotten in the way? And is there an opportunity here to kind of shake the etch-a-sketch that is the bullshit that's come between you and for both of you to agree that you're just going to be siblings and you're going to unlock what is one of the, the most rewarding relationships you can have as an adult, and that is to have a loving, generous relationship with your brother or your sister. That's the unlock. Our producers are Caroline Chagrin and Drew Burrows. Claire Miller is our assistant producer. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. Thank you for listening to the Prop G Pod from the Vox Media Podcast Network. We will catch you next week on Monday and Thursday. <laughs> more to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.